Wow, you're a bad mother. I'm Kevin Leeson. In my professional opinion, work hours should not be set by the cocaine addict. I'm Dr. Rob Tarswell. Spear through the heart and you're to blame. You give booze a bad name. I'm Joe Fulgham. I'd go through a maze if there was cocaine and Oreos at the end. I'm Torn Atkinson, and this is Caustic Soda. of addiction is ethismosophobia. What does that mean? It means fear of addiction. In researching this, I started trying to look at, you know, we normally do our intro. The topic is this. Mm-hmm. Yes. Addiction is super complicated and there's... What? We don't yeah. talk about complicated things. I know. Okay. Well, we'll see you next Air week. Attacks. Hence the presence of Dr. Rob, perhaps? Right. So I've he got Dr. Rob here. So things. Dr. Rob, right off the, what, right off the bat, what are we going to say uh, addiction is when we're talking on this podcast? Five word definition. Sure. Loss of control over behavior. Okay. okay. Loss of control right. over behavior. So that's kind of similar to the sort of thing that Dr. Drew is always saying on all his numerous television and radio shows that anything that you can't stop that uh, negatively impacts your life, work, relationships, financial situation. That's his definition of, of addiction is, and that, that seems like it's in the same vein. You guys are in the same vein. Would you say there has to be a negative consequence to the thing you can't stop? No, because oh. think of functional alcoholics, right? Mm-hmm. right. Uh, somebody can manage uh, to be a teacher. Somebody can manage to be a cop. Somebody can manage to be the mayor of Toronto. Right. <laughs> and somehow the blowback never hits them. Okay. So, right. But they're still addicted. Right. Yeah, they've okay. lost control over use, right? Right. Even though they're managing to sort of stick handle their way through oh, life. But one of the things I forgot, his, uh, one of the things is a negative impact your health as well. Well, you can go for a long, long, say alcoholism. You can go mm-hmm. a decade or more before mm-hmm. you actually suffer significant health consequences okay. from heavy, heavy alcohol use. Right. So what I'd like to find out by the time this episode is over is whether I'm addicted to sugar or I just really like it. <laughs> well, uh, I, yeah, I guess. Have you lost control over your consumption of sugar? Has he ever exhibited any control define... whatsoever? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I guess I'll have to define what that, what what that control means. means. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> Do you keep using despite wanting to stop? Yes. Huh? All right. There you are. Then you may have an addiction to sugar. All right. All right. Uh, my suspicion is true. <laughs> So I've got a, a list of a few uh, specific addictions that we'll probably be covering. Well, one of them we probably won't because I think we're going to have an episode specifically on that. But uh, drug abuse, of course, is a pattern use of a substance drug in which the user consumes the substance in amounts or with methods which are harmful to themselves or others. This uh-huh. adds in the the harm uh, aspect of it. Yep. Sexual addiction is a conceptual model devised in order to provide a scientific explanation for sexual urges, behaviors, or thoughts that appear extreme in frequency or feel out of one's control in mm-hmm. terms of being a literal addiction to sexual activity there's some this is controversial yeah, right like this one's a little controversial yeah it could be a, just a compulsive thing uh, and again it's probably just getting into what do you call addiction right, right. Uh, this is obviously something that you want and it can be causing problems so i think it, it gets covered here mm-hmm. uh, problem gambling i think we might have a gambling episode so i'm not going to touch too much on this okay. but that's an urge to continuously gamble despite harmful negative consequences or a desire to stop right probably depends on what you're gambling like if you you know put you know 
one of your kids up or something like that. That would be a problem. That's a problem. Yeah, yeah. Right. It's not just gambling. It's mm-hmm. problem gambling. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then, of course, video game addiction, a relatively new one, is an excessive or compulsive use of computer games or video games, which interferes with a person's everyday life. Uh, video game addiction may present as compulsive game playing, social isolation, mood swings, diminished imagination, uh, and hyper-focus on in-game achievements to the exclusion of other life events. What about, like, Facebook and other internet stuff? There is also internet addiction, yeah. In May 2013, video game addiction was added to the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders in the Conditions for Further Study section. Oh, okay. As Get internet back to this. gaming disorder. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it, this looks interesting. So this is this is, these are those um, those trial sports for the Olympics that they're test driving, but aren't metal sports yet. Right. What? You don't like sports. I understand. He doesn't. That. You no, don't, no, don't have totally. to. Like, this is know, video game addiction. Is the it's the ballroom dancing of mental disorders. Yeah, right there. You yeah. Go. Mm-hmm. So is there anything on that list that you can get addicted to or anything not on that list that we, you can get addicted a, to? A great amount. If you start opening up that definition of addiction to other things, there's a show called My Strange Addiction. It's a reality right. show. Oh, yeah. right. And they talk about all sorts of weird things yeah. that people are, quote, addicted yeah, to. Like girls are eating chalk. and Yeah, you know. it's, but it's things like one woman is addicted to licking her cat. Right, which right. is it feels to me more like a compulsive disorder right. rather than an addiction. Yeah. Is there a difference, but, Dr. Rob? Well, these things do shade into one another. If you think about addiction as loss of control of use, we can broadly define that in two ways. So there could be process addictions, which means addiction to a specific behavior, such as internet addiction, pathological gambling, sex addiction. And then there would be the substance use disorders, such as substance dependence, where you right. become, you've lost control over use of a particular substance. Now, obsessive-compulsive disorder is repetitive behaviors that you feel compelled to perform, even though you know they're irrational. Sure, like licking a cat or like washing your hands. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So a compulsive hand washer who's... Because cats can lick themselves. Phobic of germs. (laughs) Cats most certainly can lick themselves. So then the question is, is this person addicted to hand washing? Have they lost control of use over hand washing in the way that an alcoholic has lost control overconsumption of alcohol. And I mean, there are similarities in terms of the surface behavior, but in terms of the psychology and the neurobiology, there seem to be pretty specific differences. So for instance, in obsessive compulsive disorder, one of the treatments that's quite effective would be high dose SSRIs or serotonin reuptake inhibitors, whereas Mm. those have almost no effect at all in classical addiction. Okay such as, say, right. alcoholism, sex okay. addiction, and so forth. Right. So, so we're gonna... definitely a medical quantification. Yeah, yeah. And, the you know, you, neuroimaging looks different in people with OCD versus people with addiction. Now, so they, they shade together, but there do seem to be in the uh, Venn, differences. In the Venn diagram of mental disorders mm-hmm. or uh, diseases or whatever, sure, uh, there's some overlapping in compulsive disorders sure. and addiction? There might be. Think of something like compulsive masturbation or porn addiction. Right. Is that, you know, where does that fit? It's, it's hard to say. Right. It's right in my lap. <laughs> <laughs> Literally. Where does hoarding fall in the equation? Hoarding is... Because there's like 27 hoarding shows on TV. So yeah. That means, yeah. that means it's a problem. That means and what if you're addicted to something. hoarding television shows? Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that there's so, an executive producer out there who might be. Yeah. <laughs> What's really interesting about hoarding behavior is it often has onset later in life, whereas addictions often mm. have onset in teenage years or young adulthood. Right. Obsessive compulsive disorder often has onset in young adulthood or interestingly, sometimes in kids after certain viral infections, they can develop obsessive compulsive really? disorder spontaneously. Yeah. So they watched a video on Facebook that's gone all over the internet and then they're obsessive compulsive? 
Wah, wah. Is he addicted to bad puns, or does he just compulsively tell them? Uh-huh. I, the, now, the, hoarding the... tends to have an onset later in life, uh-huh. and it often is linked with something called Diogenes syndrome, which happens in older individuals who become sort of socially coarse, uh, reject help, become staunchly resistant and independent, and right. suddenly just start can- hanging on to everything. Yeah. Can't throw anything away. Yeah. And then those are the folks who end up with like 17 grand pianos. Yeah. <laughs> 10 Model T Fords, mm-hmm. things like that. That's a good problem or, to have. <laughs> or like 100 lead acid batteries that were brand new in the box 15 years ago when you bought them mm-hmm. and now are completely <laughs> worthless and you still won't sell them, mm-hmm. which we saw in the hoarding episode. Wow. People who are addicted then start using what they're addicted to. Mostly we're going to talk about drugs in this episode because okay. that's where the more caustic examples are. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do have a few examples of some internet and uh, computer addiction and stuff. When you do these drugs that you're addicted to, your body tends to build up a tolerance, right? Right. And so you need more and more. How does that work? So tolerance and withdrawal are two important phenomena within the spectrum of physiological dependence. And this is where we don't have enough words. And unfortunately, people... Oh, let's make some up. <laughs> people get into all kinds of confusion. So I would say deal with a patient when I was working in the chronic pain program who would come in and was on morphine and say, Doc, I'm worried I'm addicted to the stuff. Well, what do you mean you're addicted? Well, every time I stop using it, I kind of get sweaty and shivery. I say, well, no, you haven't become addicted to it. You've developed a tolerance to the drug and a physiological dependence, meaning if you stop suddenly, you go into withdrawal. Right. Mm-hmm. That's different from a psychological dependence. If you, you want to stop using this, you could stop using it tomorrow, but all we need to do is wean you off this carefully. Right. Mm-hmm. And then you won't have a problem. Yeah, you won't mother, get all sweaty yeah, and jumpy yeah, and nervous. Yeah. And, mother Te- and I would say this again and again. You know, Mother Teresa and the Pope would become physiologically dependent on morphine. It's just a right. feature of mammalian neurobiology. Mm-hmm. But they but wouldn't only nec- one of them is, is addicted to gambling. They wouldn't, and they wouldn't necessarily be down at the 7-Eleven with a mask and a gun getting money right. to okay. get more morphine. Mm. So what is the difference between physical dependence and psychological dependence? Right. So physical dependence is when you take a substance that, say, speeds up or slows down neurotransmission. Mm -hmm. So a a, a depressant or a stimulant. And depressants would be things like alcohol, benzodiazepines, opioids. Stimulants would be things like caffeine, cocaine, Ritalin. And your brain adapts to that if it's constantly being bombarded with a depressant it's going to rewire itself at a cellular level to speed up and go faster. Okay. So as it does that, you need to take more of the substance to get the same effect, and that's tolerance, Mm. where you need, say, more morphine to reduce the pain. Chasing the dragon. Chasing the dragon. And Mm. as soon as you stop, now you have this unopposed... Dragon right on top of you. Revved up brain, (laughs) and then you go into withdrawal. Whereas the opposite problem occurs with stimulants. The brain in response starts to slow itself down, slow itself down, slow itself down. And when you take the stimulant away, people who are coming off of cocaine kind of go through a phase that I call baby therapy. They sleep till they're hungry and then they eat till they're sleepy. Okay, now hold on a second. So you're saying that somebody who's taking... Sounds like my life and I never even knew took cocaine. (laughs) (laughs) It's the people who are on cocaine or addicted to cocaine. Yeah. Or have a dependence on cocaine. Say physical dependence, yeah. Physical dependence on cocaine. It it slows them down? Because then why do they talk so fast? Well, their brain slows down in response. Right. Right? 
But why the, are they so the, like jittery and jumpy? And the drug makes them faster. The drug and makes in response to that, the brain slows itself brain down. Brain slows itself down. So when you take oh. that away, so it's your brain while on cocaine is trying to normalize. Yeah, your so brain is like underperforming. Your brain's always trying to head back to an equilibrium state. Uh, okay, all right. Okay. Internally defined, genetically defined. Right. So that's that's that would be sort of the process of physical dependence leading to withdrawal. Mm-hmm. Psychological dependence that would be the loss of control. That's the addiction the part of it. That's the addiction part. Of okay, it. yeah. Right. But people kind of get dependence, physiologic dependence, psychological mixed up, and then they assume physical dependence means addiction. It doesn't. Right. Right. Got it. Okay. So now we've got the different types of dependence. So what is the difference between dependence, use, misuse, and abuse? Right. So use of a substance is simply... They all sound kind of similar. (laughs) It's simply consuming it. So say you have a glass of wine, you are using alcohol. Right. Okay. Misusing alcohol, say... It's throwing in somebody's face. Well, that could be one misuse of alcohol. That's a misuse. That's a complete and utter waste of fine alcohol. Another misuse of alcohol might be, say, you're uh, an 80-year-old living alone, and you can't get to sleep without your hot toddy at bedtime. You're kind of miss... That's not really what alcohol is for. (laughs) Yeah. Right? Abuse is continued use despite adverse consequences. And you can be an abuser without being addicted. So, for Mm -hmm. instance, say... And this is very common in college students, Right. You go out partying the night yep. before the exam, mm-hmm. and you end up showing up for the exam still drunk. Well, right. <laughs> and then the next night, you do it again. Dr. Rob, yep. are you speaking from experience? That is... <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Key admissions. I, I, uh... No, the one place that he's really good is learning. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> learning while drunk. Yeah. Now, when I was in college, I uh, was still uh, an evangelical Christian, oh, and okay. so oh, oh, totally. no, none of that, no, none All of that. Right. Yeah, good luck. So the that is abuse, but that's not necessarily what, being an evangelical Christian. Wah, wah. <laughs> that wasn't even a pun. So. <laughs> Most folks graduate from college, go on to careers, and their alcohol use, they they develop a completely normal relationship Uh to to alcohol. Mm -hmm. Uh, Whereas the ones who keep on drinking, drink harder, and then they go on to their careers, and they're sneaking it at work, and they're like, oh man, I gotta stop. But then they're at the bar that night, they they drink, they say, I'm gonna have two on the way home, and then they got ten, and then Mm -hmm. they're driving home drunk. Okay, that's that's probably dependence. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's use, misuse, abuse, and dependence. All right, fantastic. So I wanted to look into the history of addiction. It was actually really difficult because addiction is a relatively recent kind of discovery that, right. that humans get addicted. Or uh, conclusion. But, what's that? Or conclusion. Or conclusion. Like people probably were addicted in yes, probably. ancient times. Well, they just didn't call it that. Especially to alcohol and things. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, let, me, let me tell you, I've got, I've got a little write-up on the history of drug use and addiction. Like Genghis Khan was addicted to pillaging. <laughs> Very it sure seemed that More way. More than likely. Yeah, yeah. That would stop. That would explain his massive unending conquest. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Napoleon was uh, a brandy drinker. Oh yeah, like a hard brandy drinker. He'd have a, like a bottle before going okay. into battle. I'll talk yeah. about him later. But Alexander the Great was uh, like famously drunk a lot. He liked his wine. Uh-huh. Uh, nice. And human... all of those guys were addicted to catching syphilis <laughs> <laughs> and conquering the world. <laughs> 
Humans have used drugs of one sort or another for thousands of years. Early Egyptians used wine and narcotics from 4000 BC, and medicinal use of marijuana has been dated to 2737 BC in China, which we mentioned in our, in yeah. our marijuana episode. It wasn't until the 19th century AD that the active substances in drugs were extracted. Uh, back then, these new substances, morphine, laudanum, cocaine, were completely unregulated and prescribed freely by physicians for a wide variety of ailments. They were available in patent medicines and sold by traveling tinkers, in drugstores, or through the mail. During the American Civil War, morphine was used freely, and wounded veterans returned home with their kits of morphine and hypodermic needles. Right. Opium dens flourished, yeah. and by the early 1900s, there were an estimated 250,000 addicts in the United States. I, I, I mean, uh, Sherlock Holmes openly uses cocaine in the yep. other Conan Doyle stories. Yeah. Now I know why there were so many soldiers in the Civil War. Yes. <laughs> yeah, get their morphine. They didn't care about freeing the slaves. <laughs> or getting shot. Or mm-hmm. getting shot. The problems of addiction were recognized gradually. Legal measures against drug abuse in the United States were first established in 1875 when opium dens were outlawed in San Francisco. The first national drug law was the Pure Food and Drug Act of 1906, which required accurate labeling of patent medicines containing opium and certain other drugs. In 1914, the Harrison Narcotic Act forbade sale of substantial doses of opiates or cocaine except by licensed doctors and pharmacies. Mm -hmm. Later, heroin was totally banned. Subsequent Supreme Court decisions made it illegal for doctors to prescribe any narcotics to addicts. Many doctors who prescribed maintenance doses as part of an addiction treatment plan were jailed, and soon all attempts at treatment were abandoned. Use of narcotics and cocaine diminished by the 1920s, and the spirit of temperance led to the prohibition of alcohol by the 18th Amendment to the Constitution in 1919, which lasted until 1933. That seems like throwing the heroin out with the (laughs) bathwater. Yeah, basically, there was a problem. You know, people were getting addicted, and there was this social problem and and these unregulated drugs. Loose women and whatnot. Yeah, and and of course, because of the marijuana, white women wanting to sleep with black musicians. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the horrible drawback of marijuana. Mm -hmm. Uh, but yeah, they totally went way too far. They were like, let's ban this completely. Let's not look at proper ways to deal with people who become addicts. Yeah, they, they, they weren't prepared to do it. It's the earliest part of criminalization. Right. Yeah. The earliest example of a famous addict that I could find, and it, again, it was very difficult because before this, 19, this 1900s or so, uh, they didn't really have an idea of, mm-hmm. of addiction. They just said they drink a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the earliest one I could find was Alexander the Great, who was almost certainly an alcoholic. Uh, he was famous for his fondness of wine. Many of his com- contemporaries commented that he drank too much. And some scholars believe alcoholism was the cause of his death. Right. Uh, At the ripe old age of 33 or so. Yeah. The claim is in dispute, however. And most historians believe that while he did drink a lot, he probably died from typhoid or influenza because Mm -hmm. that's what the uh, symptoms that he had were. Of course, it could be that he was in a weakened condition because of alcoholism, but it's so long ago, it's hard to, uh, to know. There is one story of a drunken rage, however. Oh, yeah? Yeah. By uh, Alexander the Great? By mm-hmm. Alexander the Great. Six years after one of his father's great friends, Cletus, saved Alexander's life on the battlefield, Cletus was given the position of satrap of Bactria. Satrap is the governor. Mm-hmm. And Bactria is what is now northern Afghanistan. Okay. During a banquet to celebrate this, where most attendees, including Alexander, were drunk, Alexander announced that Cletus was given orders to take 16,000 of the defeated Greek mercenaries who formerly fought for the Persian king north to fight the steppe nomads in Central Asia. Cletus was furious at the thought of commanding what he saw as as second-rate soldiers and fighting nomads in the middle of nowhere, and he spoke his mind. He's, yeah. he's, he's, uh, like, he's like, okay, that's, that's fucking bullshit. I'm, I saved your fucking life. Yeah. Hey, how, how about we talk about this in private instead yeah. of at a banquet with all the dudes and ladies around? 
To make matters worse, when Alexander arrogantly boasted that his accomplishments were far greater than that of his father, Philip II, Cleitus responded by saying that Alexander was not the legitimate king of the Macedonians and all of his achievements were due to his father. What? Drunken Alexander called for his guards. I was about to say, this is a great way to get stabbed. I know. This is just as much a drunken outburst on Cletus's part. He was drunk as well, for sure. Hey, Stalin, you're a jerk. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Alexander called for his guards, but they did not want to intervene in a quarrel between friends. Okay. All right. Well, when booze is involved, they're just sitting there going, you know, that classic, like, out behind the bars, I'm totally going to fight you, dude. Like... Just take a breather. Think about this. Come on, my lord. Walk it off. You're just, uh, you're just drunk and angry. Yeah. Alexander threw an apple at Cletus's head. Oh my okay. god! <laughs> and called for a dagger or spear. But people near the two men removed the dagger and restrained Alexander. <laughs> Alexander then called for his trumpeter to summon the army. <laughs> but the alarm was not sounded. This is this is a classic arms race. How drunk do you have to be? <laughs> I gotta get my army to fucking kick your ass. No, but you know why he did it. Is because he goes, I'm going to stab you and hit you with this apple and kill you. Yeah. And Cleetus turned around and said, you in what army? Yeah, there you right? go. So, you know, in oh, Alexander's defense. Get my trumpeter. You think I don't got an army? I got an army. Okay, where's my trumpet? Give me my trumpet. I want my... Yeah. Cleetus uttered more grievances against Alexander. And at this point, Alexander got hold of a javelin and threw it through Cleetus's heart. Nice. Oh, wow. Not too drunk Killing for that. Him, obviously. Oh, well... Good throw for I a throw bad jabbers yeah. better when I'm a little tipsy. Now, oh, you know what? One you know imagines what? it was I, point blank range. I do play pool a little bit better when I've had a couple of uh, pints of there beer. Just imagine the pool is a spear yeah. and the little balls are hearts. Yes, exactly. Yeah, no, you know, exact same thing. Cletus should have known better. Now, Alexander, apparently, everybody reports that he, he was he was grief-stricken by killing his friend, the man who had six years before had saved his life in battle. Like, mm-hmm. uh, the, the story is that somebody was bringing down a killing stroke on Alexander, and Cletus cut off the guy's arm before it landed and saved his life. Like, no doubt about it. But historians also point out that Cletus was, uh, as he remarked, one of Philip II's men, mm-hmm. and Alexander had actually been going around and killing most of them in order to cement his own power. So it's possible that there was something else going on kind with of the killing of him. Uh... So he didn't swear off booze after he killed his friend. Oh, no. No, no. He kept drinking, and some people think it did lead to his death. Although it could have been many other things. It was. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to post-mortem somebody from that long ago. Right. I have an interesting article on a drug addiction study that's from nearby. Rat Park. Rob, do you know about this? Yeah. I think you know some of the Bruce Alexander up in the 70s. Yeah, yeah. 70s and 80s at SFU. Uh, Rat Park was a study into drug addiction conducted in the late 1970s by Canadian psychologist Bruce K. Alexander and his colleagues at Simon Fraser University in British Columbia, Canada, just north of where we are right now. Alexander's hypothesis was that drugs do not cause addiction and that the apparent addiction to opiate drugs commonly observed in laboratory rats exposed to it is attributable to their living conditions and not to any addictive property of the drug itself. Okay. He told the Canadian Senate in 2001 that prior experiments in which laboratory rats were kept isolated in cramped metal cages tethered to a self-injection apparatus show only that, quote, severely distressed animals... Oh, I should do a Canadian accent. Oh, yay. Severely distressed animals, like severely distressed people, eh, will relieve their distress pharmacologically if they can. Hoser. Weren't you already doing a Canadian accent? I totally was. (laughs) I just upped it. 
To test his hypothesis, Alexander built Rat Park, uh, an 8.8 square meter or 95 square foot housing colony, which is 200 times the floor area of a standard laboratory cage. Mm -hmm. There were 16 to 20 rats of both sexes in residence, an abundance of food, balls and wheels for play, and enough space for mating and raising litters. Okay. Oh, but this, even a nice jail is still a jail. I was about to say, it sounds like rat nirvana. Yeah, yeah. Rat, rat, rat Burnaby. Rat yeah. Park, yeah. The results of the experiment appeared to support his hypothesis. Rats who had been forced to consume morphine hydrochloride for 57 consecutive days, so forced to become uh, junkie. physically dependent. dependent. Yeah. Oh, you know what? What the, A rat junkie? Runky? Uh, yeah, okay. These rats that were became physically dependent were brought to Rat Park and given a choice between plain tap water and water laced with morphine. Uh For the most part, they chose the plain water. Nothing that we tried, Alexander wrote, produced anything that looked like addiction in rats that were housed in a reasonably normal environment. Control groups of rats isolated in small cages consumed much more morphine in this and several subsequent experiments. And what they did was they started to, rats really like sweet liquids. Morphine has a bit of a bitter taste. So they started adding more and more sweetness to the morphine water, Mm -hmm. seeing what it would take to get the rats to be interested in it. And they generally still, they started taking it more because it was sweet, but would still avoid it and drink the regular water because they were happy enough in Rat Park and didn't need to get stoned on the morphine. Okay, so that's an interesting idea. It is. It was published in a small journal, relatively forgotten, but it's kind of come back to the fore now that we're talking about harm reduction strategies and things like that. It's still not proven, and I I think Dr. Rob would agree with me when he says that the drugs don't cause addiction. I mean, we we know about physical dependence for sure, and the drugs do cause that. Uh, And what happens in rats isn't going to be directly translatable to what happens in human beings. Right. What about wait, were-rats? We're not rats? We're not just like giant rats? Well, you are. Uh, I am well, not rat-faced. You and Nikki Lauda. <laughs> <laughs> However, it certainly does explain why it seems to be that the people in poor and more distressed areas tend to be the ones who get addicted to drugs well, rather than the rich people who can afford the drugs. Or, yeah, I mean, let's deconstruct this just for a half a second. Guess yeah. what? You're in deplorable living conditions. Yeah. You live in squalor. You yeah. have very little money. You don't have a lot of hope or prospects for improvement yeah. in your living situation. Is it easier to become a drug addict under those circumstances? I would dare say so. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, is that bear situation that, that causes it? Uh, that's That's kind of a strong link because there's plenty of people who live in those situations mm-hmm who aren't addicts. If the situation in and of itself were the cause, then everybody who lived like that would be an addict. It could be, but it could be like a major factor. Yeah. Right. So for sure. I mean, uh, most things don't have one cause. But then again, you could also talk about the root factor being poverty. And then it's like, Mm -hmm. okay, it's, it's their financial situation that creates that, that it just because it creates the living situation, it also creates the addiction, but those aren't necessarily linked. Yeah. There's a lot of there's a see, lot of see what I said logic. about this yeah. topic being complicated. Yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I'm not even smart, and I'm like, you know, figuring all this stuff out. On December 21st, 1970, yeah. Elvis Presley engineered a meeting with President Richard Nixon at the White House, where he expressed his patriotism and his contempt for the hippie drug culture. Yeah. Uh huh. He asked Nixon for a Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs badge. To add to similar items he had been begun collecting, mm-hmm. Nixon, who found the encounter awkward, <laughs> expressed a belief that Presley could send a positive message to young people and that it was therefore important that he retain his credibility, quote unquote. Right. 
Toward the end of 1973, Presley was hospitalized semi-comatose from the effects of Demerol addiction. Oh, Elvis. <laughs> According to his main physician, Presley felt that by getting drugs from a doctor, he wasn't the common everyday junkie getting something off the street. But how would Elvis have said that? Oh. <laughs> Just like that. <laughs> he was semi-comatose. Yeah. The book Elvis, What Happened?, co-written by the three bodyguards fired the previous year, was published in 1977. It was the first expose to detail Presley's years of drug misuse. Uh-huh. He was devastated by the book and tried unsuccessfully to halt its release by offering money to the publishers. By this point, he suffered from multiple ailments, glaucoma, high blood pressure, liver damage, and enlarged colon, uh, each aggravated and possibly caused by drug abuse. Who knew he was such a fan of punctuation? <laughs> yeah, and large colons. Mm-hmm. Presley was scheduled to fly out of Memphis on the evening of August 16th, 1977 to begin another tour. That afternoon, Ginger Alden discovered him unresponsive on his bathroom floor. Attempts to revive him failed, and death was officially pronounced. Why do you think he died on the toilet? What, did, what, uh, what would be the medical explanation for that? <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a good question. I mean, if he was an opiate addict, and this is wild speculation, he had an enlarged colon. That's probably from the chronic constipation from chronic opioid use, which right. slows your colon down. Uh-huh. So if it gets harder and harder to do the a job, you've got to, to generate more and, and more pressure. Yeah. yeah, and that in itself has been linked in extreme cases to strokes and aneurysms. Oh, and he there was, you go. He so, was fat Elvis oh, by this point, man. too. So Elvis might have been trying to push really hard on the pot. Yes. And then just died from pushing. Yeah. Don't push, people. I Actually, this is going to lead very nicely into a story that I've got that I found on Reddit. I, <laughs> oh, my goodness. All right. I'll save my surgeon story. Yeah, mm-hmm. let's, because this also talks about opiates and constipation. I found this story two years ago. Okay. And I said, I have to save this for an episode. Wow. You don't plan ahead for anything. I don't. This is like the only thing ever since I've known you that you've planned is, ahead for. This is from Reddit user Cat 22 of course, it's got cat. Hey, in shout it. out, Hubble's cat. Thank you. Twenty-two. Uh, I didn't ask him for permission, so you know. Well, or well, you, he posted on Reddit. It's probably his cat who's po- doing the post. Oh so yeah, you don't true. Have, you don't have to worry about true. It. His twenty-second cat. Yeah. 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 Thank <laughs> you, Hubble's, for letting Cat Twenty-Two tell us this story. <laughs> mm-hmm. Ugh. An ex-junkie friend of mine told me a horror story about his time on the needle. I'm not sure if it's true or not, but here goes. I did check to see if this was possible. Opiates tend to shut down peristalsis in the small intestine, leaving heavy users chronically constipated. Mm-hmm. That's what happened to this guy. Laxatives didn't do any good. After he, after he hadn't shit for over a week, he was so bloated that it started to hurt. So okay. he just quit eating. With the heroin mm-hmm. and the bloating, he didn't feel hungry anyway. After a while, he started farting from his mouth. What? He would burp, <laughs> and it would smell like a dog fart. <laughs> That's you know why Hubble's cat is posting this because mm. he's like kept blaming it on me. Yeah, dog so, didn't smell like a cat fart. Freaking pets. What can I do? Burp. Finally, he did a sick hit of junk and knew he had to throw up. I've seen guys fire up and go sort of pale green and puke their guts out, then come back and nod off. That's more or less what happened to him, except he was vomiting shit. Wow. He thought he was going to die. Turds came up and he bit them off and spat them out (laughs) and (laughs) swallowed what was left so he could breathe again. (laughs) Oh, 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 God. God. And the last line in the post is, that was what made him decide to kick. 
Ah, well, if that won't, if that doesn't do it, nothing will. So, Dr. Rob, you're saying that's possible. Stay off the smack, kitties. It's, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, feculent emesis can definitely occur. Feculent emesis. Or, or oh, cup yeah. premises, yeah. You know what it sounds like? It sounds like a hockey player from Eastern Bloc somewhere. Feculent <laughs> emesis. <laughs> or a supervillain from yeah. Eastern Bloc. Oh, so, yeah. Secret the, disguise? Uh-huh. The Reddit thread is full of people going, this is bullshit. But then there's a few people saying, I have Crohn's disease and this has happened to me. Right. Uh, and copremesis is a real thing, although it usually isn't feces, but just com- like completely digested food that's been in there for a long time and comes up. So right. it's not doesn't have everything that would happen if it was coming from your lower intestine. Right. Uh, but still, like... Depends where the level of obstruction is. If yeah. the obstruction is high, it's just going to be vomit. Then the next stage is bilious emesis, meaning it's got bile in it. And then if it's a lower intestinal obstruction, then it can be feculent emesis. Right. Biting off the shit that you're vomiting. Could you ever brush your teeth enough? I, Could you, like, it just like... No, no, you just, just use sit, toilet paper. You just sit there. Yeah. <laughs> 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 Which so would also be gross. Toilet paper in the, in the mouth. Ugh. I can just imagine looking in the mirror, and just like it's still not clean. That's our, <laughs> that's our still, closer right there. Let's a, just stop the episode right now. Oh god. <laughs> As everybody knows, one of the aspects of medical training of residents is they have to stay up overnight. So, mm-hmm. in theory, this is to get exposed to lots of cases. This was actually first developed by a surgeon named William Halstead. We hate him, don't we? Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, he was a brilliant surgeon. And his view on the matter was that the physician needs to learn to remain dispassionate in the face of intense suffering and death to be right. able to deliver okay. the best possible care. That's not entirely a crazy idea. So the way to harden character is through adversity. So he <laughs> okay. proposed long hours of call, and that became widely adopted in the medical training system. What I, was I thought I was going to suggest that he's, his suggestion was that uh, everyone should kill someone. <laughs> oh, yeah. Take a human <laughs> or, life. Or send them out into the wilderness to kill a wolf on their own, just yeah. like the Spartans. Uh-huh. Oh, there you go. Well, he didn't reveal the full aspect of the training program, and it was found out years later that William Halstead was able to stay up overnight because he was a cocaine addict. Ah, oh, nice. <laughs> nice. So... A fundamental plank in modern medical training is premised upon cocaine, the cocaine dependence. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. and using a stimulant in order to be yeah. able to do the using massive a stimulant amount of hours. Overnight. So yeah, it, it, uh, and, and surprise, surprise, staying up overnight leads to medical error. Right. It leads to car accidents driving home. It leads to death. It's, it's an extremely problematic so, issue, and yet it just keeps rolling on. But it just and on it just persists because uh, people just go that tradition, or I, yep. or is it just like the people, the medical professionals who are in the position to actually change it? They did, hey, fuck it, I had to do it. Good you enough for do yeah. It. Well, that's that's how tradition is perpetuated, yeah. right? Meanwhile, you know, nurses, police, firefighters have developed the radical concept of shift work, uh, yeah. but it just right. hasn't taken off within medical culture. Interesting. Uh, Except in emergency physicians. They do shifts, but everybody else does nine to five plus call shifts. So I put the call out the other day saying, listen, I want to hear from you ahead of time for addiction. I can't believe you didn't mention. And the the best one I got was from Damon Schooler. In the 1980s, metal band Motley Crue toured with Ozzy Osbourne. Okay. Motley Crue drummer Tommy Lee reports, and I have the video of this from YouTube. So confirmed, at least from reports of the people there. And go out to check it on causticsodapodcast.com. Absolutely. One night, we're on the bus. We're all drinking, doing a ton of cocaine. The sun is coming up. We pull into some resort-style hotel in Florida. Ozzy sees a popsicle stick laying on the ground, and there's a long trail of ants going to it. And he gets down on his knees and goes, (laughs) and we're going, 
oh, wow, that dude's fucking crazy. <laughs> so he's snorting the ants? Ozzy Osbourne is so fucked up on alcohol and drugs that he sees a line of ants and he snorts it. And then he becomes addicted to ants. And then no. he becomes, is that possible? He becomes Ant-Man. Ah, <laughs> uh, both. Those they, aren't mutually exclusive. Okay. Perhaps there's currently a colony of ants living inside Ozzy Osbourne's skull. That would explain quite a bit. That would explain quite a bit. Maybe they're controlling him remotely. Yeah, oh. via toxoplasmosis. No, not oh. toxoplasmosis. Or they're the, the uh, ants that have the parasite. And that's now right. That's right. controlling so Ozzy. It's yeah. meta-controlled. Yeah. I'm a cat as I prowl on the dance floor. Don't ignore me. You can't pretend. You can't pretend. My soul ignites in the lights on the dance floor. Especially pets are the sex. That my body sends I feel the power I learn to surrender Disco magic can move my soul The music's calling and I have to answer Total eclipses when my hips start to lose control The lights are flashing and the bass is thumping like a bass too The synthesizers make it synthetic sounding The music's plastic and my soul is made of melty hot glue I'm like a sexy Drop, take it. <laughs> October 2013, Connecticut. Connecticut college students and a professor of psychology have found America's favorite cookie, the Oreo, is just as addictive as cocaine. Ooh. At least for lab rats. Joseph Schrader and his students found rats formed an equally strong association between the pleasurable effects of eating Oreos and a specific environment as they did between cocaine or morphine and a specific environment. They also found that eating cookies activated more neurons in the brain's pleasure center than exposure to drugs of abuse. Oreos better than cocaine. That should be the new slogan. Exactly. And on PETA's accidentally vegan list. Oh, nice. Oreos are completely vegan. Really? Yeah. Yeah. But, or the other option is to, uh, you know, the white little 
sugar center. Just make it like a cake of cocaine. There you go. Yeah. Best of both worlds, cocaine yeah. Oreo. Now, keep in mind, these results are preliminary and subject to further scientific review, mm-hmm. a.k.a. somebody else will dispute this. Our research... Oh, what kind of voice should uh, Connecticut? Do- Professor Joseph Schrader from Connecticut, Connecticut Yankee. Well, his name's Schroeder, so do it like Ricky Schroeder. Late 50s brush cut scientist. <laughs> Our research supports the theory that high-fat, high-sugar foods stimulate the brain in the same way that drugs do. It may explain why some people can't resist these foods, despite the fact that they know they are bad for them. Mm. To test the addictiveness of Oreos, Hanahan and his team measured the association between drug and environment. On one side of a maze, they would give hungry rats Oreos, and on the other, they would give them a control. In this case, rice cakes. I tell you, if you want to have something that you do not want in favor of Oreos, rice cakes is the best possible choice. Yeah. That's a terrible control, though. It kind of is. Just like humans, rats don't seem to get much pleasure out of eating them, Shred said. (laughs) Then they would give the rats the option of spending time on either side of the maze and measure how long they would spend on the side where they were typically fed Oreos. Uh huh. While it may not seem scientifically relevant, it was surprising to watch the rats eat the famous cookie. They'd break it open and eat the middle first. Oh, yeah. That's the way to do oh, it. So that's the, do uh, they also dip them in milk, though, before? <laughs> so I take back what I said earlier bit. about rats and humans not being alike. I know. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Uh, they compared the results of the Oreo and rice cake test with results from rats that were given an injection of cocaine or morphine, Ooh. known addictive substances, on one side of the maze and sh- a shot of saline on the other. Maybe they just found a bunch of rats who didn't like being injected. Maybe that's the problem. It's got nothing to do with Oreos versus cocaine. It's eating a cookie versus being injected with something. No, no. They they compared eating a, uh, so eating a cookie on one side of the maze to rice cake on the other side, and yeah. then they compared that to getting a shot of cocaine or morphine on one side or getting a shot of saline on the other side. So both times they were getting shots. It's one right. had drugs, one had just saline. Okay. And then the other time they were, they were getting either f- food from one side or the other. And soda jerks, no injecting Oreo, you wags. <laughs> oh. The research showed the rats conditioned with Oreos spend as much time on the drug side of the maze as the rats conditioned with cocaine or morphine. They measured the expression of a protein called CFOS, a marker of neuronal neuronal uh, neuronal activation in the nucleus accumbens or nucleus the accumbens. <laughs> should I, I should just leave the pronunciation of Dr. Rob. It basically tells us how many cells were turned on in a specific region of the brain in response to the drugs or Oreos. Apparently, Dr. Rob also needs to pronounce on and in. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't mind. It was just wah, the tenor. Wah. It was just the, uh, you know, the tone and the tenor. Uh, the researchers found that the Oreos activated significantly more neurons than cocaine or morphine. So your brain fires up even more from Oreos than, co- than cocaine. Right, but again, we're talking about rats. Like, I can understand yeah. why a rat would like a cookie more than drugs. I guess so, yeah. Fascinating, eh? I know. And this kind of research is used by food researchers who make processed food and has been a really active area since the 70s when the processed food boom yeah. started happening. And how do we make this saltier, fattier, sugary? Because there's so much competition in the processed right. food market. Right. You do this not to go, oh, my goodness, people are addicted to it. But, oh, my goodness, people are addicted to yeah, it. Yeah, we've got these rats hooked on Oreos. woo yeah. So it's actually the foodstuffs And people. by rats, we mean children. Yeah. <laughs> this correlated well with our behavioral results and lends support to the hypothesis that high-fat, high-sugar foods can be thought of as addictive. Even though we associate significant health hazards in taking drugs like cocaine and morphine, high-fat, high-sugar foods may present even more of a danger because of their accessibility and affordability. Mm-hmm. And like Oreos I said, cheap. 
you, cheaper than heroin. You can you can go cold turkey or not ever even try cocaine or morphine, but yeah. you can't not ever try food. Yeah, you can't I'm, go cold turkey on food. Couldn't you just couldn't unless you just, it's turkey? I oh yeah, well, that's who true. That breatharian guy. Oh, oh the yeah, the breatharian. <laughs> couldn't you get some sort of drip that would like uh, handle all your nu- nutritional needs? You like, can actually have total parenteral nutrition, meaning it is injected directly into your veins. But then your Perfect. jaw will atrophy. <laughs> as long as you keep talking. I don't think your jaw will atrophy. Okay. <laughs> Maybe your gag reflex would. It's pretty handy. We use it in patients who've had, say, colectomies for cancer right. or severe colon infections and who can no longer uh, digest. Or somebody or, who just wants to prove Joe wrong when he utters something like, you can't go cold turkey on eating. And I'm like, I'll show that guy. I just, I just d- define eating as that counts. Yeah. <laughs> Soda jerks, no voluntarily use. Of total parental nutrition, you wags. Oh, don't listen to Dr. Rob, guys. Do it. Send us photos. January 2006, New Mexico. Rebecca Colleen Christie was a World of Warcraft player and mother of a three-and-a-half-year-old, Brandy Wolf. I already don't like where this is going. I know. Christie's ex-husband, U.S. Air Force Sergeant Derek Wolf, had expressed reservations about his wife's ability to take care of their child. Her older daughter had already been placed with Christie's parents. To whom did he express these reservations, I wonder? <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. To the people at World of Warcraft. Uh, yeah, maybe. Uh. Wolf told an FBI agent he would regularly come home from work and find his daughter with an empty water glass as his wife was busy, quote, playing on the computer. The house had an overflowing litter box and pervasive smell of cat urine, and there appeared to be so little food that the child ate cat food. Mmm, delicious. Oh. There was also no Pediasure, which a year prior had been prescribed to the child for digestive problems and frequent diarrhea. Pediasure? I guess that's a brand name for... It's a complete nutrition in a liquid. Interestingly, oh, okay. also used as a TPN, um, TPN? product. Total parental nutrition. Ah, okay. For 15 hours on January 25th, 2006, from noon until 3 a.m., the computer showed continuous activity as Christy chatted with friends from the online fantasy role-playing game. 15 straight hours? Yep. I can't do 15 straight hours of anything. Look, I'm a computer jock, but 15 hours? Mm, wow. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've, I've probably done it, but... Not very often. Not when you're in charge of a three and a half year old. No, no. I feed my dog every day, twice. Whether it needs it or not. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Oh, he needs it. Mm-hmm. Oh, man. An yeah. hour before, he's sitting How there looking at me. How else is he going to create all those farts? Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> three and a half year old Brandy Wolf gained just a pound and a half in the last year of her life and weighed 23 pounds when Christy called 911 on January 26, 2006 to report her daughter was limp and unconscious. The toddler did not survive, dying of malnutrition and dehydration mm-hmm. in hospital later. Christie was uh, five years later. It took five years for this uh, for this to go through the courts. Christie right. was found guilty of second degree murder and child abandonment and sentenced to twenty five years in prison. Okay, I've seen a lot of people re- reacting to this, saying this is crazy. She may have just been, you know, she's mentally ill or something like that. But when they find her guilty of second degree murder, that makes me think that. They really love babies. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that means that they found that there was intent, right? Because first degree means you planned ahead of time. I'm going to go yeah. there and I'm going to kill this person. Second degree means you didn't really plan it ahead of time, but you kind of went, yeah, I'm going to kill him, like at the moment. Yeah, I think that's right. The to manslaughter Whereas is where there's I would no think intention. It was, I, like manslaughter and child abandonment is what it feels like from reading it. But by the fact that it went through the courts and got to second degree, I think means there's something being left out of this. Well, or I mean, you you 
often in prosecutions, you give the jury uh, multiple charges mm. to choose from, and then the jury convicts on the charge. And you do that when you're a prosecutor, when you're not sure how the jury's going to react. So you give them an option to do like higher or lower mm. charges so that you, you just, because you just want a conviction, you don't want to charge somebody with first degree murder and then have them acquitted as a result. Because right? first is too much. Because first is too much, yeah. right? So maybe they gave them, oh, we'll put in second degree and mm-hmm. manslaughter and just like child abandonment right. and we'll give the jury a range. And the jury, maybe they all like babies. You know why it was? Because she was on the stand yeah. with her little um, oh, PSP or PSP her Game Boy all the time during the... <laughs> Trial. Yeah. Probably trying to answer sh- questions. Shrugging. I don't have a kid to take care of anymore. What do you care? <laughs> no, no. She was playing the uh, a child abandonment uh, <laughs> video patch. game. Yeah. High score. Yeah. Ooh. Got confused between the video game and real life. Uh-huh. Yeah. I can't even wah wah that. Yeah. yeah. And in your, in your research, did you run across the other interesting phenomenon of chipping or chippers? No, oh, chippers I, are chippers I, are I'm chipper all the time. All right, well, chippers are individuals who can use a substance that's ordinarily addictogenic and never get hooked to it. So this is somebody who can like smoke a cigarette on a Friday night or eat Pringle chips. Maybe that's where the name came from because those are addictive. Oh, no, Slay's <laughs> the ones. Lay's is the brand that you can only can ever have just one. Yeah, no, no, well, a chipper pop, can have one. Once you pop the top, you can't stop. Oh, I see. oh yeah, right? he's right. Well, <gasps> a, a chipper can stop. Oh, okay. One third of the way through the can. All right. And I hate those people. Yeah. Why is that? Well, we don't know. But uh, we let's, presume, let's pres- carve their brains out. Presumably, <laughs> well, we might be able to get at it uh, more indirectly. Okay. okay. Right. In ways that Through are the com- nose? Compatible with, with some living. pliers? Scoop their brains out with a spoon because it'll hurt more. The ancient Egyptian style. No, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. More the Robin Hood Prince of Thieves style. Yes. I got it. Alan Rickman. Yeah. So, yeah, they're these fascinating folks who and can why use things they... like nicotine or cocaine or heroin. But why are they called chippers? That's just the term. Oh, yeah. okay. Because they got, they got the lucky chip. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Or they can just take a tiny chip of... Maybe. I, yeah, I'm not yeah. sure why. I'm well, not sure where that term Pringles reference. <laughs> Any chippers out there in jerkland? <laughs> well, or people who think they're chippers. Oh, I don't get addicted. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Not addicted. Sure, sure, I do it every day, but I don't have to. Everybody's a chipper when you ask them. Yes. I can stop true. eating food anytime I want. It's like everybody in prison is innocent. Everybody. That's right. Pop culture? Now, in the Fallout video game series, of which uh-huh. I've spoken many times, which one of we time. love, Faves. you can be addicted. Yeah, okay. you can be addicted to alcohol. There's many different kinds of alcohol you can find, mm-hmm. and there's okay. also chems. They don't call them drugs; they call them chems. Okay, and they're all made up chems. You never find cocaine. Right. Originally in the game, you were going to, but they changed it off because uh, they were worried that people might actually play yeah. the game and then want to get the actual drugs. Yeah, yeah to they get didn't the want to glamorize yeah. the drugs. So they have drugs like uh, Jet, Psycho, Buff Out, Turbo, Buff Out. Yeah. Does that just make you shine things? Makes you stronger. Makes you oh. feel like you look sexy. Oh, yeah. okay. I thought it meant you were going to have to wax every car you saw. Buffalo is awesome because one of the big things about Fallout is you're carrying all your junk around, and it's yeah. based on how much strength you have. So you pick something up, you're like, this weapon's awesome. Uh, you are encumbered. Uh, I better take some drugs. Hey, I can carry it. Yeah. Okay. And then you get addicted. Mm-hmm. You do. You Every drug have a, has a different percentage of uh, you know whether or not you'll get Dependent. addicted. Dependent, yeah. yes. And then in Fallout 1 and 2, addiction will last seven to nine days. And in Fallout 3, it's permanent until cured by visiting a doctor. 
Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. So the game effects would be, you know, your charisma is lowered by two and your endurance is lowered by yeah, two or something right. along those lines. Because you're slovenly and yeah. look bad. <laughs> and uh, that's withdrawal. So now there's also uh, an item called fixer, which semi-permanently clears any addiction. The addiction is removed, but it can be reacquired by continued use of the drug that caused it. It also causes the player character to feel woozy, which produces a visual and auditory effect similar to having been poisoned. Something okay. else can happen in All the right. game. Yeah. Do you prefer your characters to be addicted or do you prefer them not to be addicted? I don't prefer yeah, them to be addicted because I... it is a real drag when you, uh, you know, you're in a battle, whatever, you take a drug to become, uh, you know, yeah, you to, that bonus. For, to kill the big monster. Yeah. And then, you know, after the encounter, you have penalties to your stats until you travel to the next town or whatever and right. pay the yeah. money to the doctor to, for the treatment. And, yeah. It and was there, just... are, there are perks and stuff like that that can minimize your, mm-hmm. uh, you know, your percentage chance to get addicted or the effects of the addiction and stuff like right. that. Yeah. In yeah. fact, there's a, a lady called Rose who uh, when you have her as a companion you can drink as much alcohol as you want oh yeah and you won't suffer the effects of alcohol because when you're hanging oh. out with Rose yeah because she's she loves whiskey oh okay and she gives you a special <laughs> recipe to make whiskey whiskey and for some reason you it's don't non-addictive whiskey <laughs> oh. right. fascinating mm-hmm. uh-huh. you can just take it you can become a, you become a chipper there oh, you go okay I, I think you can end up being completely immune to addiction if you choose all the right perks oh, uh, as you go through and just become a yeah. total drug fiend. Like you get bon- like you get extra bonuses for the drugs because your body's so used to them and you get, I think, minimized uh, addiction or withdrawal symptoms. I, I was like you, though. I, I felt that like the bonuses for those drugs was not worth the hassle later on. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, so I got a plus two to my perception. Like, big deal. It's not worth being weak for Plus the alcohol... Minutes has a weight to it. Yeah, but the right. drugs never have a weight right, to it. Right, right. <laughs> so I would always just ditch the alcohol but keep the drugs. Yeah. I think my only drug was like Radex and Radaway. Like yeah. I just wanted stuff to heal me the radiation. Yeah. Other than that, I wasn't all that interested. You gotta take the psycho and the uh, jet to defeat those death claws at the early levels though. Otherwise there's no way. Mm-hmm. Just FYI. I rewatched Requiem for a Dream. Love that movie. I don't. Oh. It's odd. Uh, I know lots of people love it. The first time I saw it, I actually hated it. The second really? time, I did appreciate it more. This time, I think I, I, I have a better grasp on the problems of addiction and, and addicts and stuff. The first time I watched it, I really had no sympathy at all for the, the younger people in the movie, Jennifer yeah, right. Connelly. Uh, and then because, and I, I realized why when I watched it the second time. In the very first scene that you see uh, Harry, uh, played by uh, Derek Jeter? Or the Jared, Derek Jeter, Jared, Jared, uh, Jared, Jared Leto. Leto, Derek Jeter, Jared Leto. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, the very first scene you see him in, he is a junkie stealing his poor mother's TV to mm-hmm. sell to a hawk place so that he can buy drugs. Right. I never got to see him where I liked him as a non-thieving, <clears throat> his own mother junkie. Yeah. So I instantly hated him. Mm-hmm. And then as horrible things happened to him because of his addiction, I was like, that's what you get for being a terrible person. Right. So I, I didn't care about him one bit. And everybody else was telling me, this movie's so sad. I was sadder this time because I understand probably before this, he was addicted and stuff, but it was yeah. still hard. I felt terrible for the mother though. Well, I mean, the thing- She was, was addicted <clears throat> to diet pills. That's right. Uh, she was addicted to diet pills. She was addicted to food, which is why she's on the diet uh, pills. And, and she was TV. addicted to television yeah. as well. Yeah. I mean, Can the, you be addicted to television? Dr. Rob? Anything, any behavior you can lose control over, you okay. can be addicted to. Uh the um what about love 
might, might as, as well, well face it. it. You might as well face it. <laughs> You're addicted to uh, love. The thing that I appreciate about Requiem for a Dream is how they draw the dichotomy between the two sides, between yeah. the street junkie and the the person who is you know supervised by a doctor, albeit a criminally negligent one, right? And you know become uh, have the exact same basic pathway, right? That there's a legitimate and an illegitimate, but they're all kind of born of the same animal, right? Yeah, and that it's you know something that we all have to be vigilant about, right? Yeah, and that society at large is kind of wants us to be addicted to these things. Yeah, it was there were so many people enabling too. all of them yeah. for sure. And again, I feel like I felt bad for the mother, like. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, her friends were encouraging her, but that's what they were supposed to be doing because mm-hmm. she was very happy at the time. Uh, and then she just has a complete breakdown. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I admit, as a film and drawing those parallels and things like that, it, it's very successful, which is why I appreciated it more the second time that yeah. I watched it. I still didn't care. Well, I mean, Dar- Darren Aronofsky is a difficult filmmaker, yeah. right? Like, I, me personally, I like like every other movie of his. Okay. <laughs> like that half of them I hate and half of them I love. So it's, uh, you know, he swings for the fences and, you know, I think uh, he makes challenging films and I appreciate him. Yep. Well, you know the parts in the movie where it, it's very stylistic in terms of they show the eyeball and yeah, then they with, show the gurgling yeah, of the drugs. Yeah, instead of showing him actually, it's yeah. Do, yeah. they have that little that sequence. sequence. Yeah. yeah. That was a duplicated frame, I believe, shot for shot in an episode of The Simpsons. Oh, yeah, yeah. Where he bites into the rib witch sandwich for the yeah. first time. Uh-huh. And uh, it's all that kind of a stuff that happens. Yeah. And we're talking about Homer when you say he. Yes. Yeah, yes. I'm assuming when it comes to food addiction, yeah. Homer kind of checks all the boxes. <laughs> like that that scene, you know, Homer has food addiction. Oh, that yeah. That sequence when... Uh, Does this he, sound like a man who has had all he can eat? Uh, no, my favorite one oh. of Homer's food addiction is the one where he gets that like 10-foot sub from the carnival and he can't oh, stop yeah. eating it after it goes bad. Oh, yeah. And Marge makes him throw it out even though he's like like gone like gray so and throws it, it out and then he comes sneaking back. He's like, I can never stay angry at you. <laughs> and he like brings it back inside like it's like a, you know, love of his life. Life, or right? eats the last fragment of donut and goes to hell. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You <laughs> like donuts, huh? You have all the donuts you can eat. I'll, I'll, I'll more. I'll, I'll. The, uh, the, the, um, the pancake in the shape of Jesus, sacrilegious. Mm, floor pie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I think that's a long-established uh, Homerism. Yeah. I uh, I like this director Darren Aronofsky asked Jared Leto and Marlon Wayans to avoid sex and sugar for a period of thirty days in order to better understand an overwhelming craving. Oh, there you go. That's interesting. Doesn't say I whether if they, they could do it. Uh, yeah, <laughs> it doesn't say whether they did it. He says that he asked. Yeah. Yeah, well, you know, they, I'm sure they told him they did it. Now, of course, there is more uh, addiction in The Simpsons. Marge Simpson becomes addicted to slot machines when a right. casino is built in Springfield. Yeah. And they, that continues through, uh, even though they don't show it. Homer loves to bring it up. Yeah. Because yeah. you're addicted to gambling. <laughs> <laughs> Such a great husband. Uh-huh. Oh, the Flintstones? Fred Flintstone had a severe gambling uh, problem. Really? To the point where remember. simply mentioning the word bet in his presence caused him to get a crazy look in his eyes and start repeating the word over and over. I remember this do precisely. Bet, 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 is what he would do. I oh, do wow. not remember that at all. <laughs> and then there was a Smurf called Lucky Smurf. Who, uh, and it, it wasn't it, about getting lucky? And, no, it wasn't. There was no Smurf, Smurf sex. Uh-huh. This was in the comic book, okay. uh, The Gambling Smurfs. He never seemed to win at gambling, but he sure tried. 
He was up all night to get so lucky. So he's yeah. called Lucky for the same reason that Little John is called Little John. Yeah, yeah ironically. So. Yeah. yeah. Or Brainy is called Brainy. Yeah. <laughs> he's up all night to get lucky. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also rewatched Train Spotting. Fantastic movie. We've talked about it before. I, yeah. I think in one of our follow-ups episode. I'm not sure when else. Yeah. Uh, early, early, early on in season yeah, one. Yeah, yeah. It's a 1996 Scottish black comedy drama film directed by Danny Boyle, uh, based on the novel of the same name by and Irvin Welsh. By Irvin Welsh, and it's a breakthrough performance by Ewan McGregor. It is the movie that made him famous. Yeah, absolutely. The entire movie is about addiction and people but, who are ad- yeah. addicted to heroin. And what they have to do and, and what the lifestyle is like. And and some really excellent uh, artistic depictions of withdrawal. Yeah. Uh, some examples of people who decided not to use the drug and then just for one reason, okay, fine, sure, and then become more addicted than everybody else and their life goes to complete crap. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it shows like basically the entire, you know, cornucopia of experiences that you can have yeah. from drug addiction. And at the same time drives home that, hey, people do this because it feels really, really good. Yeah. Like, which a lot of, I think, drug education doesn't tell you. Mm-hmm. Like, being honest about the positive aspects is probably going to help keep people off it. Yes, it feels really good, but yeah, look at all this horrible Consequences. Crap. Yeah, yeah. And why is it called transporting? Oh, it's because that's what, uh, you know, people who are on the dole and whatever, they're just like watching the trains go by. On the I dole? Think. Yeah, like if you don't have a uh, job or Welfare. Whatever. On the dole means on welfare. Okay. Mm-hmm. So what does that have to do with the, they were unemployed? Oh, yeah. They're junkies. All they did was, you know, do drugs. Right. Train spotting is just a useless habit that people do. Mm-hmm. Oh, I see. Uh, they, they watch trains and keep track of which one goes by at what time because mm-hmm. they don't do anything else. and. When you're a heroin addict in Scotland, you just don't do anything. You just do heroin. Anybody I else see. here see the uh, Basketball Diaries? I did. No. A long time ago. Yeah, I saw it a long time ago. It's about heroin addiction. Leonardo DiCaprio yeah. and Mark Wahlberg. I remember being good. It, 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 one of my favorite Mark Wahlberg performances of all time. Not that that's saying much. I, but, yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, they uh, they become heroin addicts. And the, the interesting part I thought about that film was, was that whenever they, they would shoot up, you would have these dream sequences. Like you wouldn't actually show what they were doing while they were high. And Leonardo DiCaprio would be running through fields of poppies, Okay, you know, and just like, you know, with just beaming with ecstasy. (laughs) And then he would kind of like snap out of it with like a hard cut and he'd be in some crack den, like just covered in human filth. And like, how did I even get here? And you know, that there was this stark contrast between what it was like on the drug and what it was, you know, like when you were no longer on the drug Mm -hmm. and you had to deal with real life. Right. And uh, so that was, I drew a really visual dichotomy between the two things that I hadn't really seen in any other movie before or since. That dragon lied to me again. <laughs> I watched 1955's The Man with the Golden Arm. Oh, I, this has been on my list to see forever. It was, uh, okay, again, I've, I state this a lot. I'm not really a big fan of the old-timey movies. Their uh-huh. pacing tends to be a little slow, and you know yeah. they haven't learned the full uh, com- way to, to communicate in film yet uh, back or, then. Or we've just changed the audience. Or, we, or, mm-hmm. we've, or I've changed, sure. Yeah. But this is a very good film, aside from those Typical drawbacks. Yeah. Uh, I was really surprised that Frank, for how well Frank Sinatra did at this. Right. Uh, and apparently, this is one of the first films to actually show an actual heroin addict as one of the characters in it. Right. And it was a big deal at the time. And what really surprised me was how kind of uh, forthright they were with how it worked. It didn't feel very Hollywoodized. Right. Why was his arm golden? Uh, well, his arm was golden because he was an amazing poker dealer. Right. I didn't understand. There's a lot of weird, like, just Hollywoodisms in it. Like, okay. he, so the film starts, he gets out of prison. Okay. And in prison, he's kicked the junk. 
So okay. he's now he's now an ex junkie, but in prison he learned how to play the drums. Okay. And now he's so good that oh baby I'm gonna make it I'm gonna I'm gonna be in a band and I'm gonna be set for life and oh, I'm yeah. like as a drummer <laughs> from well, learning in prison. Well, and with the, I mean too, if you want to stay off uh, drugs, maybe being a drummer in yeah. a rock band is not the best idea. Yeah, yeah, or a dealer for uh, illegal poker. Yeah, I'm gonna Look. invent this thing called rock music, and drummers will rise to prominence. <laughs> well, it was the time of you know uh, big bands playing yeah. at at nightclubs and things like that. So uh, he thought he would just have a regular job or something mm-hmm. and go clean, but it just felt like a total ridiculous dream. Yeah. Like, we, we won't die what? prematurely or mysteriously. Wait, it's like <laughs> no. Joe, you don't know anybody who has a ridiculous dream that you think is kind of an un, uh, doesn't really have a reality. But the thing is everybody believed him oh my goodness you're gonna make it like yeah. they didn't even hear him play uh the film goes Are you through sure they didn't just say it in old-timey voice ah oh, for sure you're gonna make it kid <laughs> you're, gonna, you're make gonna make it, it. Kid. you're gonna be all the way to the top bit of a mcguffin yeah 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 maybe you, didn't, you just didn't pick up on the subtle nuances of the old-timey uh speak it's, it's true so uh what is his downfall through the movie is of course other people who want him to do things for them mm-hmm. and they want him to because he's i don't know why he's apparently a non-cheating poker dealer but he's really good okay it's again this part of the movie is up in the air and weird like right. what if, if he's not what cheating, differentiates a good dealer, dealer from a bad dealer that's yeah. a good question it's never said uh, okay. no i want you to do it man i want you to deal it could just be he's good with the people i don't know yeah. everybody seemed to be happy when he hey. yeah. of course he doesn't want to he wants to break free get out of this illegal stuff and start being a drummer and they get him rehooked on cocaine and it all goes to hell right or, or sorry on heroin and it all mm-hmm. goes to hell but very realistic, uh, very empathetic, and I thought uh, Frank Sinatra, who I didn't think would be a really great dramatic actor, I thought he did a pretty good job. Oh, there you go. Yeah, good times. I want to talk about RoboCop Two. Okay. Oh yeah. What do you remember about RoboCop Two, Doctor Rob? Them being a lot of drugs. Oh, there was that red. Yeah. Stuff. Nuke. Nuke. Yeah. <laughs> and the robot with the face of the bad guy projected on it. Yeah. After a successful deployment of the Robocop law enforcement unit, OCP sees its goal of urban pacification come closer and closer. But as this develops, a new narcotic known as Nuke invades the streets led by God delirious leader Kane. Yeah. As this menace grows, it may prove to be too much for Murphy to handle. Murphy being Robocop. OCP tries to replicate the success of the first unit, but ends up with failed prototypes with suicide issues until Dr. Fax, a scientist straying away from OCP's path, uses Kane oh. as this new subject for Robocop 2. Yeah, okay. What could go wrong? So he's, mm. and he, be, and to control him, they have him being addicted to Nuke. Right. So you, me, you might remember That's that. That's right. The gigantic robot addicted to Nuke. Yeah, you yeah. might remember towards the end of the movie, they're having that presentation and he kind of goes crazy. Yeah. Starts killing the people in the audience. And then the scientist whips out this jar of Nuke to yeah. kind of distract him and to get him to follow him. So uh, total addiction yeah. in that movie. Mm-hmm. And for IMDb trivia... Uh on RoboCop 2. Although the producers loved Frank Miller's original version of the script, they quickly realized it was unfilmable as written. (laughs) The final screen version was heavily rewritten and bears only a superficial resemblance to Miller's story. In 2003, Miller's screenplay was adapted into a comic book series titled appropriately Frank Miller's RoboCop. Okay. (laughs) Worst title ever. Have you read it? How is it? I have not read it. I don't (laughs) really plan on reading it. Because I actually kind of like the movie. Do you? Eh. RoboCop Two was not good, but it had a lot of cool elements in it. Yeah, yeah. I like the Kane stuff, and I th- and even back in the day, I think the robot stuff. I because I saw it again, like I don't know, not too long ago, five six years ago, mm-hmm. 
and and the robot effects kind of hold up. Okay. Sure. Yeah. I like I like the cane face on the uh, yeah projected on the robot yeah so he was a cyborg but he only had the brain and the eyeballs as I recall yeah. maybe part of the spinal column yeah yeah so the controlling the evil robot with the drugs reminds me of the Gem Hadar from Deep Space Nine mm-hmm. uh, the mm-hmm. founders genetically engineered this race of warriors and kept them uh, under control with this drug called the White Tetracel White oh Tetracel White the White. Okay. And basically, they were their super soldiers uh, who could only get the white from the founders so that they would always serve them. And it was yeah. also their food. Like, they got everything they needed from this Tetracel white. Yeah, yeah. It was it was food. And I, I think they'd been genetically created so that the Tetracel white was a, an important part of their actual genetic makeup. And without right. it, they would just die. Yes, right. that's true. Got it. But, and yeah, the, if they went with through withdrawal, their circulatory systems began to shut down. And psychologically, they became, the, they, and psychologically they became uncontrollably violent. Okay. Attacking their enemies, and then their Vorta overseers, and then finally each other. Right. So you gotta. This doesn't sound much different from people in a famine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I didn't rewatch it for this because I only remembered it uh, very uh, late in it, but I have watched it before, and this full documentary is actually up on YouTube. I don't know exactly how legal or how long that will stay up, but I'll put a link up on Uh It's a 2008 documentary called Second Skin. It follows the lives of seven people as they delve into the world of massively multiplayer online role-playing games, MMORPGs. MMORPGs. Second Skin examines people whose lives have been transformed by virtual worlds in online games such as World of Warcraft, EverQuest, EverQuest 2, and Second Life. The documentary follows a group of online gamers whose lives are intensely woven together inside and outside the virtual worlds, a couple whose lives have changed since meeting online, and an avid player whose life spins out of control due to his addiction to playing MMOs. It also presents disabled players who have been given voice and mobility in the virtual world and explores the controversial world of Chinese gold farming and presents facts about online gaming. Gold farming? Well, yeah, that's not really relevant to this story. But basically, uh, there are people in China who play the game and all they do is do everything they can to get as much gold as possible. Oh, I see. And then sell the gold to people in North America for actual money. In real life, okay. The documentary states that half of MMO players claim to be addicted. Are they really, though? Well, they're not... Depends if they've lost control over use. (laughs) Uh, Five-word definition. I'm going to say this movie was a major point in me quitting World of Warcraft. And I don't... I, I wasn't addicted to World of Warcraft... But I did play. Well, if you it was had just a it, chipper, couldn't have just quit. It's just I, a chipper. I wasn't a chipper. Here's what I saw. I saw some of these guys as a potential that I could end up as. Mm. Right. I was like, oh damn, like that's not that far. They I, were no, the shit barfers. Yeah. Well, I <laughs> I wasn't that. So when I played World of Warcraft, uh, when I went into it, I was very aware that there were people who lost their like lost their lives in it, not dying, and their babies. but just didn't. Yeah. I made an actual effort to... I did not join a raiding guild. Raiding is kind of the end game thing where you get like 20 to 40 people and you all meet on a certain night and you're all going to do this very hard thing that requires a ton of people. The reason I didn't want to do that was when you join a raiding guild, it means that you have to show up on a certain date or you kind of lose your place. And I never wanted to be invited out to a real world event and go, oh, I can't. I have to go play my online game that night. And so I stayed away from that. I think that decision was a very good one. Mm -hmm. But then I saw these guys and some of them, most of them were raiders, but some of them were just playing games that didn't even have raids and were just playing it too much and their lives were slowing down and they weren't getting shit done. 
And I was like, I, I could get some more done. So, uh, and I was starting to lose some uh, enjoyment in World of Warcraft. And that, so that helped me get away from it. Uh, I'm very happy about that. So I would definitely suggest watching Second Skin. It, uh, it does talk about video game addiction quite a bit. Uh, it's got one guy who specific, very specifically full-blown admits that his life, like they say, spiraled out of control. Uh, it's it's uh, nuanced. It talks to people whose basically lives have gotten better from playing these games. Uh-huh. Uh, it talks to some people who have found romance that honestly doesn't look like it's going to work. They're just fooling themselves. Yeah. But, you know, so do people who meet in bars, right? Yeah. So meet online and fool yourself. What do I care? And then there's a bunch of people who they don't call them addicted but holy crap, like one guy moved across the country to live in a house with the guys that he played World of Warcraft with. And all they do is play World of Warcraft. They go to work right. and then they come home and they all play World of Warcraft together in the house. Now, what in the is same the advantage room. of living in the same house as the guys you play with? Uh, just that they're your friends and they like the things that you like, really. Like you okay. could you could have so voice you can chat do this. and be in a separate room. You can do this, but if you lived with your old roommates, they would call you a loser yeah. and throw a slipper at your head yeah. and like get out of the way of the TV and, you know... I need to use the computer, just look for porn, and, you know. And you're three months behind on the rent. Yeah. Other hassles. Yeah. There's this funny stain on the <laughs> on the computer chair now. Gross. Yeah. Whereas these other guys are like, oh, you got the stain too, huh? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Totally. I get that all the time, man. <laughs> <laughs> What's well, like that, that bed bug uh, exterminator came to my house and went, how much time do you spend in your computer chair? <laughs> yeah. That's where bed bugs are migrating to computer chairs and out of beds. They start calling them computer chair bugs. I also managed to track down a comic book called Snowbirds Don't Fly. It was oh. a two-issue uh, Green Lantern co-starring Green Arrow uh-huh. comic. Oh, where they shoot snowbirds? From uh, 1971. Uh-huh. It was the first comic to accurately show or even partly show heroin use, or first major comic. A superhero because, addicted to heroin? Yeah, actually. So what's uh, what it is is uh, Green Arrow finds out that uh, somebody's been using his arrows uh, in crime. Like he... He gets jumped by a bunch of muggers, and one of them's got a crossbow and shoots him with the bolt, and right. he finds out that the arrow he gets shot with was one of his. Right. And he's worried that maybe he's left some of some crime scenes or something, so he goes investigating, but he knows that his sidekick, Speedy, is also in town. You think Uh-oh. that with a, with a sidekick named Speedy, it yeah. wouldn't be heroin. Yeah. No. Yeah. no, exactly. <laughs> no, it's not heroin, but, you know, a little, uh, little, little go juice, you yeah. know what I'm saying? And a little, little pick-me-up? It turns out, long story short, that uh, Speedy, while trying to track down people, the, the the heroin pushers, decides to try some because, and he, it's pretty cool the way he explains it. He's like, listen, man, your generation told us that war was good and that skin color mattered and money was super important and all of that was lies, so why do I believe you about heroin? And it's That's a, some pretty flawed logic. It Well, it is, but at the same time, if somebody lies to you all the time about things... Right. Then how do you know that they're not lying about something else? That somebody else is telling you, no, man, it feels good. Right. I I agree. There's a bit of a difference between war and shooting heroin. Yes. Like on the scale of it, we, these are. Yeah, lies I think you're forgetting about the heroin wars. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, you know. Speedy does discover this. There's uh, no dragon in war. <laughs> another really cool aspect of this uh, two issue comic series is Green Arrows throughout almost all of it is has so much hate and anger towards the junkies like he calls them dirty junkies and he they're part of the problem and he beats the crap out of them when yeah. they they jump in mm-hmm. and and he like has no sympathy at all for somebody hooked in these drugs and then finally speedy while uh green lantern and green arrow are off doing their superhero stuff which yeah. is super 1970s cheesy right like 
it's ridiculous. Like, Saving kittens from trees and whatnot. Well, they're, they're hunting down the, the heroin pushers, but like Green Lantern, they make up reasons to not have a cosmically powered super cop just mop the floor with typical thugs. Right. Like in one, he throws his ring to Green Arrow, hold this for me, and then starts punching the guy. Right. I'm like, yeah, because you had to make it look like there might be a chance he'd lose. Yeah. Like, it's really dumb. <laughs> You know what would be awesome? Is if Green, uh, Green Lantern had thrown his ring at Green Arrow and like hangs for me and Green Arrow bobbled it and like went into the sewage drain or something. Yeah, oh, They're oh, like, oh, oh, no. Then even up to his knees and poop. Uh, total train spotting. His, yeah. He train spotting down in the sewer to get, yeah. the, to get the power ring. <laughs> anyway, Speedy goes cold turkey with the help of uh, Black Canary. She's cold just turkey there. with Black Canary? Cold turkey with Black Canary. <laughs> and at the end has this cold really canary. cool... <laughs> Uh-huh. He has Black this turkey. really cool monologue with Green Arrow about not being so uh, hating on the junkies that like okay. he, he that they can't help it that they're hooked. There's these other people, and that it's you know you lied to us and there was no support, and so you're part of the problem. You're part of the reason this happened, uh-huh. and it's it's a good turnaround because I think for the first issue and a half. Uh, you could, I could see how a lot of people reading it could really identify with Green Arrow. They're like, yeah, stupid junkies. Because that was kind of the feeling at the time yeah. through most of America, right? That you were that worthless junkies. before we junkie. had safe injection sites. Exactly. Like everybody thought junkies were scum of the earth. And this Now it's just the feeling was, through most of Alberta. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, here's one thing we do know. Because you're saying in the end, they kind of yeah. create a sympathetic scenario for the junkies, right? Yeah. That it's kind of, you know, maybe we should treat them like human beings and yep. blah, blah, blah. So whoever wrote this obviously is a junkie, mm-hmm. right? It was Dennis O'Neill wrote and Neil Adams did the art. Junkies. Uh, but the, well, the two of them actually living in New York had experience with people who were addicted to heroin mm-hmm. and they really wanted to, to tell this story. Yeah, like each other. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, Kevin Leeson claiming that Dennis O'Neill and Neil Adams are uh, were uh, heroin addicts. I'm not saying anything about today. And what did this have to do with old people going down to Palm Springs in the winter? Snowbirds. Oh. It's such a weird feeling to know you're alive. It's such an awful feeling. You're dying inside. And when you wake up, startled to say, I hope I don't go crazy today. It's such a bad feeling. An ominous feeling. A feeling you know that will be back when the week is new and we'll have more gross facts for you and you'll have things you want to hear about we will Caustic Soda was recorded by Mike Leeson while being bombarded with cosmic rays. To comment on episodes, make donations, and for links, images, videos, and show notes, visit causticsodapodcast.com. Rate and review us on iTunes. Visit us on Facebook, tweet us on Twitter at Caustic Podcast, email us at info at causticsodapodcast.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Fraser Kane. Who knew that Lawrence Fishburne was so diabolical?
You know, that character from The Matrix. What about that character? Are you talking from the about Matrix? the pills? Morphine. Morph- His character from the Matrix. Yes. Oh, Morpheus. Morpheus. Wah, wah. Both, both from the uh, morphine you know, does come from morphine. You make that sound a lot if you make that sound every time I throw a pun out there. It'll only be only, only be the bad ones. 